That's marching. He's enduringly strong. He's immortally graceful. He's impurely powerful. He's impartially merciful. He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's a prince of princes. He's a king of kings. And he's the Lord of Lords. That's my king. Well, Happy New Year, church. It is great to be back with you guys. Melanie and I had a great vacation in Florida with our family, and uh, the alligator didn't get me if you saw that online. I wanted to jump on that thing so bad, Melanie probably did not want me to, and uh, it, was, it was a great trip because uh, it was a good relaxing time with my family. So I am ready for this new year. I'm ready to get back in the pulpit and uh, to begin this series on the book of Colossians. By the way, let me say, today is not my birthday. Uh, everybody's been wishing me a happy birthday. Apparently someone has put a fake Facebook account up that has my picture on it and my birth date on it. So uh, if you want to get me a gift, please feel free. Uh, however, today is, is not my birthday. I've had about 10 people walk up and say, happy birthday. I'm like, no, it's not. So um, Colossians chapter 1 is where we're going to be beginning this morning. And uh, this video is so appropriate and, and really helping us understand that Jesus Christ is supreme. It's another way of talking about God's glory. When you think about the glory of God, He's altogether glorious because there is no one like Him. When you talk about omniscience, there's no one that knows anything compared to what God knows. When you talk about omnipresence, there's not another being created that can be everywhere all at the same time. When you look at the, the depth of God's love, when you look at the depth of God's mercy, no matter what it is that you're talking about, when it comes to God, anything and everyone pales in comparison. And the reality that we come away with at the end is that Jesus Christ is all that we need. When we talk about the supremacy of Jesus, really at the end of the day, that's the heart of it, is that we don't need anything besides Christ. When you go to the New Testament scriptures, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus would compare it. And I want you to understand that eternal life is Jesus. Eternal life is our fellowship and our relationship with him. And I want you to grasp this with me, that more than once he would say that the kingdom of heaven, and in reality, Christ is, he would say, like the pearl of great price. He would say that he's like a treasure that was hidden in a field, that when, when a man finally went out and realized that treasure was there, he literally took everything that he had and he sold it because he knew that everything was worthless. Everything paled in comparison to having this treasure, and so he traded everything for it. I want us to grasp today. That if we don't have this concept, if we don't understand who Jesus is, what Jesus Christ has done for us, what it is that he has offered us, we are going to live kind of in a sad state of affairs. Because if we don't think that Jesus is enough, it's going to attack our security as a believer. When this book was written, it was written by the Apostle Paul. He was writing to a church that he had never met. Most people think that because he wrote letters to these places, he knew these people. And more times, I mean, just as many times as not, he didn't know the people that he was writing to. He had heard about them. He had heard about their faith. He had heard about the great things that God was doing. And this was a church that he had never been to. It was in what we know today as modern-day Turkey. It's called the Lycus Valley. It is a place that was considered... Uh, uh, Small in comparison to the places that were around it. You know, we have the triad here in the state of North Carolina. It's very similar to that. There were three cities that were kind of right there together in this valley. Hierapolis, Laodicea, which you know from the book, probably uh, the book of Acts and the book of Revelation. It was the lukewarm church. And also we have this city of Colossae. Colossae was the most insignificant of all of them because it was the city that was devastated more than once by massive earthquakes. And so much of the city had been destroyed, but there were a group of people that were there that had been witnessed to, that had accepted Christ, 
that had begun being discipled in their Christian faith, and they were making a difference in the lives of people around them. And Paul writes to these people because as a new fledgling church, here's the thing that we know about God, is that whenever God does a great work, we also know something about the devil. He's going to come along and he's going to try to ruin that work. When God does something great, the devil's going to come and try to distract. And, and the way he was doing that in this place was that he was bringing in false teachers. Here were these new believers trying to understand the faith, and there were other people that were telling them things like, this is tradition, and this is what you must do. They were coming in and saying, you had people like the Judaizers. They were the ones that would come in and say, not only do you have to be a Christian, but you have to be a Jew. You've got to convert to Judaism. You've got to obey the law in order to be saved. It's Jesus plus, right? There was also these people that lived among them that were Gnostics. These people taught them that, you know what, if you want to live right before God, if you want to have a right relationship with Him, you've got to realize they taught that the body was bad, that the physical world was evil, and that that which is spiritual is good. And so they would pummel themselves and hurt themselves in order to pay penance almost before God as if it would add something to their salvation. We see similar things even in the Catholic Church today. I witnessed uh, when I was in Guatemala, a, a lady well into her 80s crawling on a cr concrete floor from the back of a cathedral that was huge all the way to the front, praying the whole time that God would see it as penance for her sin. And you want to just grab those people and say, Christ has paid the price. Christ is enough. There's nothing that you can add or take away to the salvation and to the relationship with God that we have through his son, Jesus Christ. And so Paul was writing to these people to encourage them and to combat false teaching by letting them know that Jesus Christ is supreme. And we're going to get back to that in just a moment. But I want you to grasp with me today that if I were to say that you had, like for most of us, if I gave you a billion dollars, if I said, Kevin Rainier, here is a billion dollars, right? Kevin Rainier is going to be excited about that billion dollars. He's going to be like, my goodness, I couldn't want for anything else. Wouldn't it be strange if after I gave him a billion dollars, he walked up and said, Aaron, thank you for the billion. Now I have everything, but I also need this chair. Wouldn't that be ludicrous? If he has a billion dollars, what is this chair to a billion dollars? I mean, what does it matter to have this if you have a billion dollars? You can buy a billion of these chairs. I want you to understand that to say that we have Christ, but we need anything else is just as ludicrous. If we have him, we have everything. So as we begin to look at the book of Colossians, and we look at this subject of Christ being supreme. I don't want us to feel like we've lost security because we're depending on other things. I don't want us to feel dissatisfied in life because if you don't see Christ as all, then that's exactly where you're going to end up. A lack of security, a lack of satisfaction. This is how Paul would open the letter to the Colossian church. He would say, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and the faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you just as in all the world. Also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you also from the first day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ, on our behalf, he has also informed us of your love in the Spirit. When Paul wrote this letter to the church at Colossae, he was sitting in prison. This is one of what we call the prison epistles. And as he was sitting there in prison, uh, there were many times where Paul wrote and he said that he had been receiving guests. It wasn't like kind of today where you have to go and sit on another side of glass and all that. You were able to receive guests many times. Uh, in fact, every time that you were in prison back in this day, if people didn't bring you stuff, we see it in places like Uganda as well, that literally in our system, everything's paid for. In other systems, nothing is paid for. If you need food, your family brings it. If you need clothing, your family brings it. They offer you and they owe you nothing. And that's 
that's the way that it was in imperial Rome. And so literally these friends are coming to encourage Paul while he's in prison. You have Timothy, you have men like Luke, you have men like Barnabas, you have men that are also mentioned here like Epaphras. And this man, Epaphras, we believe that he's the one that actually started the church in Colossae, when he was saying to the people in the letter that I've heard of your faith and I've heard of your hope and I've heard of your love, the testimony of this church was being received to Paul by Epaphras who visited him while he was in jail. The first time we saw him was in Acts chapter 19. And in Acts chapter 19, Epaphras was in Ephesus. And when Paul was preaching, when he was making disciples there in Ephesus, this is one of the men that kind of rose up in prominence in Ephesus. And at some point, he must have left Ephesus and he took the gospel to the Lycus Valley and churches were springing up and people were being saved. And he says, listen, I've heard word about you and now he has a message for them. I want us to see first and foremost this morning, there's three things we're going to talk about today. We're going to get introduced to the apostle who wrote the letter, which we know is Paul. We're going to talk about the saints that are the church at Colossae. And we're going to see that this is a faithful church that has a great message to take to the world. So let's begin with number one, an apostle by God's will. That is how this text begins. That's how this book starts, is Paul identifies himself. We know who the author is. He says, I am an, ap an apostle of Jesus Christ. That gave authority to the Apostle Paul. As you know, it was the apostles that God sent out. It was those 12 men. We know that Judas hung himself. He betrayed Jesus. We know that Matthias came along after him, and there were 12 apostles. Many believe that rather than Matthias, it should have been Paul. It's always debated over who the 12th apostle really should have been. We know that Paul counts himself among the apostles. The reason he can do that is because Christ revealed himself to Paul on the road to Damascus, and he charged him with taking the gospel to the Jews, but more primarily to the Gentile nations. When we talk about Paul's apostleship, he's writing as one with authority to this church. And again, I said he wants them to know that Christ is supreme. When we talk about the supremacy of Christ, we're really talking about three things that Paul's going to lay out in this book and in other books that he wrote. He's going to say that the supremacy of Christ is found in three things, really. Who Jesus Christ is. Make no mistake, Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity. He is God in the flesh, the perfect Son of God. But more than that, the Word of God tells us that He has always been. He is eternal. From the very beginning, He has always existed. And what we find is that when we say God created the world, actually what we find is that it's Christ that created the world. That through Him, everything that has been created was created. We find that not only is he the creator of the world, he is the sustainer of the world. This God who is omnipotent and om omniscient, this God who is omnipresent, this God who is mighty, this God that we have learned about throughout all the scriptures, now he stands here in the flesh. Jesus Christ, who he is. He is supreme. But also, what it is that he's done. I want you to think not only about creation, but I want you to think about salvation. When we think about Jesus Christ, how can we not think about what it is that he has done for us? All of history, everything that we see in the Bible points to what Jesus Christ would do for us on Calvary's cross. It is the centerpiece of history. His life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his second coming. All of it is all that matters in history. And I want you to think about how important it is what Jesus did. The greatest need in humanity, the greatest need that has ever been known, it's not famine, it's, it's not sickness, it's not disaster. The greatest need that we have is forgiveness of sins. And the gospel is the answer to our sin problem. That Jesus Christ did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He saved us from our sins. We were under the penalty of death because of the sins that we have committed. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God, right? And the Bible says that the wage of sin is what? It's death. But the gift, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And when Christ came and he lived a perfect life, 
He lived in perfect obedience to God the Father. He would one day go to the cross, not because he was a sinner, but he would die a criminal's death so that he could take our place on the cross. He paid the price for our sins. He became our substitute, our punishment. He took upon himself, and the Bible says that he died in our place. The wage of sin is what? It's death. And he took it. And he was buried. And on the third day, God proved who he was. Jesus proved who he was. He laid his life down and he said, I'll do what in three days? He said, I will pick it right back up. And he was victorious over the grave, having paid the sin debt that we have. All of us can have the promise of eternal life if we will believe in Christ. That's what he's done for us. But I also want you to think about what he's offered you. When we talk about Christ being supreme, folks, he is the only place, he is the only person in whom you will find peace. You can look for it a million other places, you'll never find it. He's the only source of love because he is love. Not that he loves, God is love. If you want to know true love, you will never know it apart from him. He's offered to you forgiveness. I want you to think, one of the things that really boggles my mind as a believer in Jesus Christ is that I grew up a lot of time in my life before I knew him thinking, what do you do with guilt? What do you do with shame? What do you do with your past? How do you get by all of those things? And I used to lay awake at night thinking, I will never be free of guilt. And then I met Jesus. And you know what he offered to me? A forgiveness so thorough that he took away my guilt. He took away my shame. He declared me to no longer be a sinner, but he called me a saint. Let that sink in. He has offered to you a new nature so that where I couldn't stop sinning before, he's changed me at the deepest level of who I am. And he offered to me when he said new life, he also meant a new nature where my affections would change. My desires would change. I didn't have to do any of it. All I had to do was trust and believe that Christ could give me a new nature, a new heart, and he did. And he offers it to you. He offers you eternal life. Hope. Because of all of this, what else do you need besides Jesus? This apostle, by God's will, that was his message to the Colossians, which we're going to break down and see it so thoroughly as we go through. And he says that he was an apostle, which meant that he was sent by God. That's what the word apostle means. One who has been sent out, a sent one, to tell the world about Jesus. It was the 12 apostles that went throughout the known world and they shared their faith with other men and they discipled those men and they gave them all that they needed to go and tell others about Jesus. Then those men would go tell and they would win people to Christ and they would disciple those men and then those men would go tell. And you see in the book of Acts that the gospel of Jesus Christ spread from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And that God used those men. I want you to realize that while we don't have apostles in that same sense today, understand that the modern-day missionaries that are around us, they are like apostles. They are ones who have been sent out for a mission, sent out for a purpose. When you look at the word apostle, it's funny because in the, in the Greek uh, language and in, in, in secular Greek, it was actually used to describe cargo ships. They would call them apostolic ships. They were simply cargo containers that whenever a king, whenever a ruler wanted to get a shipment of something vastly important, they would put it onto a cargo ship and it had a mission to get from point A to point B. And folks, that's the real description of the church of Jesus Christ today. That we have been sent out, that we, like the apostles, have been told to go to the ends of the earth because we have a precious cargo. We want church to really be a cruise liner. 
We want church to be like a ski boat. But you know what? It's really much simpler than that. Imagine if we had the cure for cancer and it sat in the bottom of a ship and literally we had enough vials of it that we could cure the cancer around the world. What a tragedy it would be to live life skiing, to live life like we're on a cruise ship, not realizing that the most important thing that we could do is understand that there is a precious cargo that has been given to us that will save the world. And I want you to know that salvation, it's far greater than cancer. If you get cancer, I could cure you, but guess what's going to happen? You're still going to die. If it doesn't get you, something else is going to get you. The real answer that we need is the answer to eternal life. What happens when I die? What happens to my sin? What happens when I stand before God? Is there any hope of forgiveness? Is there any hope of a new life? A new start? And the answer is yes. And it's crazy, because I'm like John. It's crazy that God could have done it a million other ways, but he gave to us that gift. Almost like we are the container ship. And he says, go. Take it to the ends of the earth. You have a mission. And you may be here today, and you may be saying, no, I am saved, but I'm not sent. No, you are sent. And I don't want you to hear me say today, I want to make crystal clear. I am not saying that as believers, we all have to be pastors. Or we all have to be missionaries and go to foreign countries and, and, and go and, and plan our lives there. But I need you to hear me. You need to be a missionary first at your house. When your feet are under the dinner table, that is your mission field. Wherever your feet are, that's your mission field. When your feet are under your desk at work... You need to understand that you have an answer for the people that you work with to the greatest need that they have. The question is whether you will have the courage to speak boldly and to share with them in the mission field that God has given to you. I, I, I'll be honest. I met the guy, David Livingston and I, we were over at Prime Barbecue a few days ago. You need to go meet the owner of Prime Barbecue. You need to sit down and listen to his testimony. I think his wife is part of M3. You ought to sit down and listen to how he has leveraged a business to be able to take the gospel to people. He is a man that rather than sitting in the office, you know what he's doing? He's out in, that for, or out in the dining area and he's making friends and he's winning people to Christ. And literally, he knows them, they know him. He's trying to build relationships so that he can use the business that God has given to him to make a difference for eternity. If you have something, if you've been given something, whether it's a job, whether it's things, whether, my question to you is, do you leverage it for the eternal purposes of God? And for some of us, God may take us around the world. For some of us, God may put us in pulpits. For some of us, God may make us teachers. But I don't want you to think that the calling is any less if it's not one of those things. It is just as great the calling that you take upon yourself to be sent out for the purpose of the gospel because you know people, you see people that no missionary, that no pastor, that no connect group leader will ever meet. You know them. God has placed you in their path. And their salvation, it's dependent on whether or not we will open our mouths and share the gospel. And you'll see why that is in just a moment. I want you to notice that Paul didn't say that it's something that he chose. He says it's not something that he earned. It's not something that he achieved. But this calling that God placed on him, it was something that God gave to him. I want you to always remember the words of Jesus that we didn't choose him. What does he say? He chose us. You see, that's actually hard for us. John mentioned it just a moment ago. It's hard for us to grasp this idea that, you know what? Our life isn't ours, that God has control of us. We submit ourselves not to our own wills, but to His will. Have you asked yourself, when is the last time that you asked yourself, God, what is your will for my life? Most Christians don't really ask that question. And if they ask it, they're almost too afraid of the answer. 
because it's probably far greater than what we're living right now. We want the cruise ship. We want the ski boat. For some reason, that precious cargo of the gospel never finds its way to the forefront of our thinking. Oswald Chambers said it best, the Christian worker must be sent. He doesn't elect to go. Have you asked God, where does he want you to go? What does he want you to do? Some people say to me all the time, well, you know what? I believe my greatest and only calling is to my four. Folks, you're not reading the scripture correctly. That's your first priority. It's not your only priority. I want to say this because really as a North American church, as Americans with great blessing comes great responsibility, doesn't it? America ought to be the one place in the world that, you know what, is sending out missionaries everywhere. Why? Because we live in a culture where we actually get time off. There are some cultures for them to go and try to do mission work, their family doesn't eat. It's hard to step away for even a day because of the culture that they live in. We live in a culture that literally, I want you to think about it. We've got more than we could possibly need. No, I didn't say we have more than we want. But I guarantee you, everybody sitting in the sound of my voice this morning, you are the 1% in the world. And we want to talk about the 1%. If you have an American passport, you are the 1%. Most of the world knows nothing of the life that we live in. We have been given the financial means. We have been given the freedom to move about the continents of the world. We have all that we need to be sending people on short-term missions. I really do believe that most of us in this room, we will make excuses for why we can't do missions. And we'll say it's not even our call. Folks, I agree. Not all of us are called to go do the mission field permanently as a calling as missionaries but most of us in this room we have been given so much i can't believe that most of us would not consider it a responsibility to leverage all that we have been given it may mean you have to give up a week of vacation but you know what the world would do to be able to have the time and the resources and the margin that we have to do ministry the way we could do it. But what we do is we get so self-centered and so self-focused and we absorb all the blessing and all the gift and all the money and all that Jesus has done for us and all the opportunities he's set before us and we squander it so often on ourselves. I still believe the United States could be the absolute greatest, strongest mission-sending country in the world. But it's gotten so bad that you know what? Countries are actually doing what? Yeah, now, now missionaries from these poor countries are choosing to come here. We have a great opportunity in front of us. Saints are set apart. Apostles are sent out. I love what he says here. He says, to the saints, to the faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. It's very interesting the way that he puts this because, first of all, I want you to see that saints are set apart where apostles are sent out. Understand that the language is very similar for the saints. Just the fact that we are called saints is an amazing thing. It's not due to our moral superiority. Rather, it is about Christ's choice. To save us, and it is about His work of atonement that brought us to the point of salvation. When we talk about this issue of I am a saint or I am a sinner, understand that you have to realize who you are in Jesus Christ. He says you are a saint. Now the question is, do I live up to what Christ says that I am? Do I believe it? 
By faith do I appropriate it into my life because when we grasp who we are as a saint, it changes the way that we live. It changes our priorities. It changes our perspective. It changes so much about who we are because saints understand they are set apart from the world and they are set apart for God. Let those two things sink in a second. Think about how your life changes when you believe and you live out the truth that, you know what, God has set me apart from the world. I'm not supposed to live like the world. I'm not supposed to look like the world. I'm not supposed to laugh at the things the world laughs at. I'm not supposed to say the things that the world says. I'm not supposed to do the things that the world does. I may be in the world, but I'm not what? I'm not of it. And then to realize that not only we're set apart from the world, but we're set apart to God. That means we realize that we're just an instrument in his hand. That his way now supersedes our way, his thoughts, our thoughts. The life that we live is no longer our own. We have been bought with a price, the scripture says. Simply put, holiness, and I want you to get this, church. When we talk about being saints, if you want to talk about holiness, it is simply the living out of what you already are. Putting away sin is remembering that you are in Christ. Look at the way he puts it here when he talks about the saints. He says that the saints, it's very interesting. He says that the saints are in Christ at Colossae. In the Greek, it literally would read, they are in Christ in Colossae. When I worked at Cypress Gardens, I, at the last years that I was there, I worked in a conservatory, and they had birds and bugs and you know, iguanas and butterflies and all these things in this, it's like this rainforest. Huge building, had a river they built into it. It was a beautiful place, and we had to learn about all the animals that always got sent into that place. We had to be able to describe it and explain it to people. And Bush Gardens, they owned us, and they sent us these little beetles to put in them. They said it was for the ecology of the building, blah, blah, blah. And so we took these beetles. And as I started to understand these beetles, it was interesting. Because beetles aren't fish, right? They're not supposed to be able to live underwater. You can imagine they got little itty-bitty lungs. And you're thinking, how long could a beetle live underwater, under mud? And literally, these things, they, they were amazing. They would literally secrete around themselves almost a form of a bubble. And they would be able to go down under the water and actually under the mud and live there for days at a time. You know why? Because they took with them their own atmosphere. Isn't that crazy? And God, I mean, when God creates things, it's amazing. It's just stupid crazy. It's unbelievable. And literally, they go down under the, under the water and they can live under that mud because they've taken with them this little tiny atmosphere. Do you realize that that is what he meant when he said that you are in Wendell, but you are in Christ? You are, you are in this world, but folks, understand, you're not of the world. We live in a different way. We live for a different king. We live for a different eternity. And literally, we have to recognize that if we're in Christ, that changes everything about ourselves. I like the way this pastor put it out of Oklahoma. I thought he said it very, very well. He said that no matter where you are geographically and physically, what you are spiritually will never change. You may be at work, you may be at play, overseas, under the weather, out of money, but you are always and unchangeably in Christ. You might be down in the dumps over the hill beside yourself, but you're always and unchangeably in Christ. You may be in paradise or in prison, but you are always unchangeably in Christ. It ought to change the way we think about being a saint. I want us to see, secondly, that not only do we have an apostle by God's will who came preaching and teaching the Colossae church that Christ is supreme, Understanding that he was sent out by God to tell the good news and that these saints have been set apart for God's work and set apart from the world. Now he turns to the church and he wants us to see a church with a testimony. An apostle by God's will, a church 
with a testimony. This is Paul's moment to speak to them. He's been talking to Epaphras, and listen to the words that he says in verse 4. He says, or actually back up to 3, he says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, And we have been praying for you since... And so he's saying, we're thankful, we're overjoyed. Literally, I mean, Paul is worshiping and thanking God, not for what the Colossians have done, but understand, for what God has done in the Colossians. And look at what he says to them. I'm thankful, I'm praying for you. Why? He says, because we've heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you just as in all the world. It's constantly bearing fruit, increasing, even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Folks, this is a church with a testimony. Let me ask you, what does the community say about Hepzibah? Understand that whatever it says about Hepzibah, it's saying about who? Me. I'm not Hepzibah. You're Hepzibah. I'm Hepzibah with you. We're not talking about the church organization. We're talking about the people who are the church. So when we say, what does God say? Or, I mean, what, and it is important. What does God say? What does the Apostle Paul say? What is the world saying? What are other churches saying? When people see us, what is said of us? When most people go searching for a church, they're not thinking along the lines of Paul of what matters in a church body. Most of us have decided where we'll go to church based on a preacher, based on music, based on a ministry like student ministry or children's ministry. And I'm not saying that those things don't have a place or a priority, but I want you to understand that every church in the country probably has a pastor, music, a youth ministry, and a children's ministry. And that's not the defining mark of a church that you should choose to be part of, no matter what you can say about those things. Those aren't the things that matter. What Paul ended up saying to the church is he says, we've heard about you, and let me tell you, we are thankful for what we're hearing because your testimony, he says, it's three things. Faith, love, and hope. If there was ever something that should be the defining marks of a body of believers, people ought to look at us. They ought to look at our church and they ought to say, there is a people who have faith. There is a people who are known for love. There are a people that are known for hope. I want you to think about what those three statements mean real quick. First of all, to be known for faith He's not talking about people who just sit and attend a church. When he says that, that's not the people that he's referencing, that you're just checking off boxes. Wife wants me to come. feel like I have to be there. It's Christmas. It's Easter. Uh, you know, it's just what I do. It's the way that I was raised. And we go into church on Sunday, but we leave Monday completely the same. There are many people that have been in churches for 30 years, and that is the story of their life. They come and they go, and yet they remain unchanged. When we talk about faith, I want you to understand how important it is that the world see that we are a people of faith. Without faith, it is impossible, the Bible says, to do what? To please God. Let that sink in a second. If that's not our defining factor as a church, that we are a people of faith, then let me ask you the question. How can we say that this church, this body of believers, is pleasing to God? Don't forget the name of our church. Our name is Hepzibah, right? You remember what Hepzibah means? My delight is in her. The only way that that could be said of a church body, my delight is in her, is if they are a people of faith, because without faith, it is impossible to please God. You say, what does it mean to live a life of faith? It means that you've heard the truth. You understood the truth. You believed the truth. You're living out the truth. 
you see, it means that there is a substance to your faith. To, there is a reality to your life that goes beyond just a nod to God and say, God, you're good, or God, thank you for dying for me, or God. Listen, it's more than that. The question becomes, have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? Have you come to the place where you have said, by faith, I'm going to trust you with my life, and I am going to live in obedience to you. Trust and obey, right? For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and what? Folks, when you hear faith, you ought to hear obedience. It's how you're living your life. There will be a day, and it's going to be a sad day, says that there will be many people who will stand before Jesus in the judgment. And he says they built their house on sand. Why? Because they heard the word of God, but they didn't act on it. That means they sat in church over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And they heard and they heard and they heard. They heard what God said about marriage. They heard what God said about finances. They heard what God said about mission. They heard what God said about raising children. They heard what God said about everything in their life. They sat there for years and years and they heard it, but they never obeyed it. He said, those people, they've built their house on sand. And when the judgment of God comes, it's coming down. And he says, on that day, there will be many who will say to me, not a few, not a couple, there will be many who will stand before Jesus Christ and they'll say, but I did all these things. And Jesus is going to say, you never knew me. Or I'm sorry, I never knew you. And he's going to say, away from me, you workers of iniquity or you workers of lawlessness. It means that they lived as if they'd never heard the truth. That is epidemic in the church today. Our churches are full of people who live like they've never heard the truth. Their faith has no outpouring into their life. It doesn't change what they watch. It doesn't change what they listen to. It doesn't change how they love. It doesn't change how they forgive. It doesn't change how they do business. It doesn't change how they treat their family. It doesn't change whether or not they go on mission for God and do anything for the gospel and making a single disciple. And yet we'll all sit back and we'll say, well, I have faith. My question is faith in what? Faith in sitting in church? It's got to be more. Paul says, you're known for your faith. Then he goes on and he says that you're also known for your love. Now, Jesus, uh, how much more accurate could this be? That if there was another thing that should be evident in the life of a church that we ought to be known for, he says, by this, they will know that you're my disciples. The world will know that you're a follower of Jesus. How? By the love that you have one for each other, one for another. I want you to think about that for a second. He said that love, I mean, I mean, I want you to think, if Jesus, if we've surrendered ourselves and we said, listen, I've died, you live through me, if God is love, how could we not be the most loving people on earth? And he says that you have to love all the saints. Saints can be hard to love, can't they? Why? Because they're people just like you. They're aggravating just like you. They're frustrating just like you. And yet God saw us in our sinful state. God saw us struggling. God saw us hurting. God saw us running from him. And he loved us enough to do everything he could possibly do to save us. We don't deserve the love that we have been shown and been given. But aren't you glad that Jesus loved us that way? Now let me ask you the question. Are you willing to love others that way? As a pastor, it's always a unique perspective because I hear all the time somebody will say, well, you know, I wanted to go to your church, but, you know, I just didn't feel loved. Well, number one, shame on the church if we didn't show them love. But number two, how about we quit talking about what other people are doing and start doing what God's called us to do? 
You have to look at people like that, and you got to say, well, then you know what, brother? Show us the way. Come, be part of this body. Change the dynamic of this church, because you're exactly right. We should be a loving people. But you know what I found? I found it especially in connect groups. I've had many people come through my office, and they'll say, you know what? I'm leaving Hepsville. I'm like, well, okay, why? Well, I was in the hospital. And a soul from my connect group came and saw me. Didn't even call me. I was gone for three weeks. I, I, I want to say to them, I concur, that sucks. I'm sorry. That's horrible. But you know what else I say? You've been here 10 years, right? Yes. You the only one that's ever been sick in that class? No. Let me ask you a very important question. How many times do you go to the hospital to visit somebody that was sick? You know what the answer always is? Isn't it funny how we want others to do for us what we won't do for others? Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't wait to show his love for us when we would love him back? <laughs> if Jesus was waiting on us, guess what? We'd still be waiting. Folks, that is the essence of love. It goes to the, the, the extremity of Jesus saying, you as a believer, you can love not only your family, not only your friends, not only those that you can get something from, but he says, you know what? You and you alone as a believer in Christ, you can even love your enemy. In fact, Jesus would say in the book of Luke that that is the defining factor of a believer is he says anybody can love people that are lovable and love them. But only a believer can go that extra mile and love the unlovable. And so, church, I want you to think with me for a minute. Are we known for our love? Do we give up on people? Do we reach out to people when they are struggling? Because I do believe someone should be able to expect that a church would reach out when there's struggle and when there's trial and when people are hurting. We ought to be reaching out as a church body. I just don't want you to be the one that expects it from everybody else but doesn't do it either. Somebody's got to start. And Christian, it ought to be us. <laughs> We're the only ones that can because of Christ in us, can we love like that? And then I found this, you know, you read the Bible over and over. I've read Colossians, I don't know how many times, and this just hit me different this time, reading it. And that's why you keep reading the Bible. That's why you never stop studying it. Because I noticed that it said, it just stuck out to me more than, than normal. He said that you have this faith and you have this love for all the saints, everybody. But then he turned around and said that it springs from something specific. That the reason we can live a life of faith and the reason that we can love like this, he says it springs from the third thing. So like a spring, I, mean, I want you to think about it. It flows out of the third thing, which the Bible says is hope. Let that sink in a second, because that, that struck me weird this time when I read it. How does the hope of heaven, the hope of eternal promise, the hope of eternal riches. How does that play into the way that I have faith and I have love right now in this life? The hope that is mentioned here, it's the assured confidence that the prize of heaven, it's ours. The future eternal blessings of heaven, they're ours. Our eternal home, it's ours. Our heavenly reward, it's ours. Knowing that heaven is ours, assured that we will one day see Christ, confident that we will inherit our eternal reward, it ought to cause us to set our minds on heavenly things so that we are able to exercise our faith and demonstrate love. Let me put it to you the way Paul will later in this book. He'll say that you have a way of living, a choice. He says that you will either set your mind on things above or you'll set your mind on things below. And where you set your mind will determine your ability to live out a life of faith and a life of love. I can tell you this, if your mind is only on earthly things, you will begin to get consumed with things like jealousy, greed, 
envy, lust. Your passions will end up taking you over if your hope and your longing and your life is focused on only what is here, temporal, in time and space. Folks, if you want to learn to love people, you got to set your mind on things above. If your mind is here on earth, then when someone slights you, you'll slight them back. When someone curses you, you're not going to have it in you to bless them because your eyes are on right now. They're right here. Listen, we got to get our minds on the things of God. we got to get our minds on the, the thought that, you know what, it doesn't matter what men say. What does it matter if a man hurts your feelings at the end of the day? Are you who everybody says you are or are you who God says you are? you got to start listening to one voice and living for one master, living for one king. And if you start to set your mind on the things of heaven, then listen, you'll start to see things on this earth in their proper perspective. I don't know how a Christian can't be missional if their mind is on heaven. If I realize that, you know what? There's a billion years here, there's 70 years here, but there's another billion years that can be lived out, not in heaven, but where? In hell. I don't know about you, I don't wish hell on my worst enemy. There ought to be something in us that, that realizes, and, and we have one eye on heaven to the point that we recognize that time is fleeting, and that people are living for the wrong person and the wrong things, and they are destined to hell without the hope of Christ. But if all we're focused on is our income and our vacations and our fun and our entertainment and everything else, then understand people will continue to perish in the millions off of this earth, having never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we can sit back all day long as Americans and say, well, you know what? I like my things. I got to work because I like my things. And I'd like to go, but I like my things. And I like my time with my... How do you think that's going to sit in heaven before God? When the one thing he asks you to do is what? Go. Make disciples. I can tell you, go on mission because it hurts when you sit in a leper colony and you realize, you realize that people are dying every day with diseases that are so curable. And no one will go into their village to tell them about Jesus because... They have leprosy. It puts things in perspective. Some of you need to get on the mission field because you need some perspective. Jesus is calling us to faith, to hope, to love. And lastly, I'll close with this, a church with a message. Not only a church with a testimony, but listen, this is a church that Paul says, you have a message because of what you've received, because of this faith that you have, because of the fact that you've been discipled by Epaphras and others, now you have a message. And he wants them to say, listen, it, or he wants to say to them, it doesn't stop with you. Do you realize that God is doing so much more, thankfully, than what he's doing in Hepzibah? I mean, do you realize that we are a very small piece and a very big thing that God is doing. And no matter where you go around the world, the darkest places, the gospel light is being sent. People may be losing their lives. People may be dying for their faith. But I want you to see that the gospel of Christ, it is advancing. And the reality is we live in a moment much like Queen Esther. That maybe someone needs to say to us, what Mordecai had the courage to say. That maybe you were put here for such a time as this, but if you won't do it, guess what? Then God will raise up someone else. And what a tragedy to miss it. What a tragedy to not fulfill the calling that we have to take this message. We are a church. We are a people that have a message to take to the nations. He goes on and, and listen to what he says. He, he makes it just crystal clear. 
He says, this gospel, it came to you just as it did in all the world, and it's constantly bearing fruit. It's increasing. Even it has been in doing in you since the day you heard of it, and you understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved uh, fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. This gospel message, listen, it's the good news of God. The reason we go and the reason we share the gospel is because it is good news. We go into the world where there is nothing but bad news. There is nothing but death, nothing but devastation, nothing but hurt, nothing but pain. And we get to proclaim a message that there is hope, there is forgiveness, there is joy, there is peace. But it's only found in one person. Christ. You want to be rid of the guilt and the shame in your life? You're not going to drink it away? You're not going to shoot it up and it go away? You're not going to sleep with another person and it go away? You're not going to look at pornography and it go away? You're not going to find any other cheap substitute that amounts to nothing to take away guilt and shame and hurt and pain. It's only in Christ. The God who created you, who died so that he could forgive you. The gospel is truth. The world needs to hear the truth, the good news. The gospel is for all the world. I love what he says. He says, this gospel that's working in, in you, and I mean, imagine you sitting here saying it to us today. The gospel, yes, it's working in your life. Yes, you've been saved because of the gospel, and God's doing a great work in you. But he said he's also doing a great work around the world. Listen, missions is getting as much as it's giving. I, that's all I can tell you. You go on mission with God, you'll come back ten times more blessed than when you left. You consider mission some kind of a sacrifice. Folks, it is not a sacrifice. If you want to be given a gift, go and see how God is working in the jungles of the Philippines. Saving Muslims. Extreme Muslims. I want you to go to the places like Moldova and I want you to see how God works in the poorest communities to raise up the most thriving churches you could imagine. And they have nothing, but they would tell you, we have everything. And you leave that place not saying, wow, they're really poor. You know what you leave saying? I'm the poor one. Sometimes we've got to see the gospel on the global level to see what God is doing in this world, how he breaks down every barrier to get the gospel to people. Because he goes on and says that the gospel, it bears fruit. It's the good news of God. It's the truth. It's for all the world. The gospel, the scripture says, it will bear fruit. And lastly, the gospel must be preached. If the gospel is going to bear fruit, and it does, it's because someone has gone and scattered seed. You can't bear fruit until you do what? Until you scatter seed. See, that's what God's called you and I to, just to scatter seed. To take the gospel, to have the courage, listen, to say the name Jesus. For some of you, that's the starting point in this room, is I want you to think, When's the last time you were really courageous enough to sit down with someone and talk about Jesus besides in a, in a small surface way? Folks, if people don't hear the name of Jesus, there is no other name under heaven or on earth by which men can be saved except the name of Jesus. I am not going to call you today to a simple lifestyle evangelism. You should be living out your faith. You should be loving others, and it should line up with what you preach. But folks, if we don't preach the gospel, nobody's going to be saved. They're just going to walk away and say, wow, he's a great dude. Wonder what makes them different. You have to tell them why you're different. And it can't be, well, come to my connect group and find out. Hey, come meet my pastor and find out. Hey, you ought to come to our church. It's an amazing church. Your pastor, your connect group leader, your church aren't the source of salvation. 
Hephzibah is not the name under heaven and on earth by which all men must be saved. It's Jesus. And so church, the question, will we, like Epaphras did, be discipled so that we can go and make more disciples. He labored for the gospel on behalf of others. And through him, God raised up a church that is going to make an impact in the Lycus Valley. Other churches are going to grow. Other churches are going to be formed. More people are going to be saved. But it is because this church realized that the message that they have... See, if I can break this this year, Fantastic. I want you to be as concerned about coming. Most of us, when we think about the message, you come here to hear the message, right? I'm going to go hear a message. I'm going to go hear this week's message. I'm going to, listen, start getting more concerned with the message you're going to preach than the one I'm going to preach. How long would you let me have my job? If you said the one thing that you're called to do is to preach, and I never preached. See, I know what some of y'all are thinking. We well, didn't preach the last two weeks. <laughs> Actually, I preached at an Indian church when I wasn't here. I'm going to take the chance to preach. Why? Because we've been commanded. You think for a second you're not going to give an account before God for whether or not you made disciples? Whether you obeyed Him with the one thing that He asked you to do. And as the musicians come this morning, I just want to challenge you. I want you to look at who you've been introduced to today, this apostle, this sent out one, who had a message, the most precious cargo of all, the gospel, that he needed to get to a specific place to accomplish a specific ministry, the salvation of mankind. And literally, are you willing to hear the voice of God say, listen, I have chosen you. For more than just this life and this world and these things, I've chosen you. I've set you apart from the world and for my purposes. If you believe that, it changes everything. And let me ask you, church, I want you to think about your testimony. As I've had to this week, think about my testimony. Out of all the things that people could say about you, are they hearing, wow, that's a man of God who has faith or a woman of God who has faith. is what people are saying about you. They love so different than anybody else that I know in my life. I've watched them have compassion. I've watched them love the unlovable. I've watched them pour into people that have hurt them over and over. They have a love that takes risks. They forgive. They show mercy and grace. Is that what people see in you? Do they see a hope that you were so focused on the coming of Jesus Christ and the promises that he brings to us that we gladly lay down this life because we know there's a greater one coming. And that in this life, you know what? Most of us have tried to build our mansions and take up residence, and he's saying, no, 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 no. You're supposed to live in a tent. You're just camping here. This isn't home. Father, we just ask you to search our hearts today. Show us. Lord, where we've gone astray from the truth of what Paul has shared today to the Colossian church. Lord, for the moments in my life where I fail to live out faith, where I've chosen something other than love, where my eyes have settled and my heart has settled on the things of this world, Lord, I pray that you would forgive me. Lord, there are people here today that need us to live out our faith and our walk with Christ. They need us to boldly speak the truth and live it out in front of them so that they can find the same hope and salvation that we have. And Lord, there are some, there's someone here today that needs Christ. There's someone here today that 
doesn't know you as Lord and Savior. And Father, I pray that today it would be the day that you would convict them of their sin. I pray that your Spirit would move on them today and show them that they'll never be rid of guilt and shame. They'll never be able to make right, make right the wrongs that have happened in their life. All they can do is come to the Creator and seek forgiveness. And if we seek it, Lord, you'll grant it to us when we surrender our lives to you. When we let you be Lord. When we repent and turn from the way that we're living, trusting that you'll change us from the inside out and you will do the work that we can't do. Lord, you're not asking us to change and come to you. You're asking us to come to you so that we might change. So Father, I pray that today might be that moment where someone would say, Father, forgive me of my sins. Father, I believe that your son saved me through the death, burial, and resurrection that he endured. Lord, today, I want you to save me from my sins. I ask you to be Lord of my life. I surrender my all to you. Lord, if there's someone here that needs to pray that, God, in this moment, give them the stillness and the quietness in their soul to finally stop fighting you, to hear you, and to believe you and to receive you. Lord, thank you for accepting us. Though we were so unworthy, Father, speak to our hearts as we pray today. Lord, let us consider what you've said in the Bible, what you've said in your word today. And Lord, may we not leave this place without speaking to you, without surrendering to you afresh, without considering the challenges that you've set before us. In Jesus' name, amen. That's my king. He's enduringly strong. He's immortally graceful. He's impurely powerful. He's impartially merciful. He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's a prince of princes. He's a king of kings. And he's a lord.